Good morning, church family. This marks the eighth week that we've been separated. Uh, I really, part of me mourns that, but I do celebrate the fact that we can still be together and, and that there really seems to be light at the end of the tunnel. We, we're beginning to kind of make plans and, and talk as leadership of the church of what, uh, what it might look like to go forward and open some things up. We're looking for direction from our local government and uh, looking to be cautious and, and hopefully in the next uh, several weeks, we'll have some direction for what it looks like uh, to worship together again. But this is the day that the Lord's made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, you are at the right place at the right time to hear the gospel proclaimed. And I want to call you to worship uh, the way we, we normally do as a church uh, through the Apostles' Creed. Uh, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Good morning, Lakeside. Um, I think to note, this um, Thursday is the 2020 National Day of Prayer. And uh, I think we've sent out some stuff already. We'll be sending you more, giving you some sheets to um, give some things to pray over. But it, it really, it's, it's, um, it's, it's the thing we've been doing annually um, for a number of years, uh, calling our, our, our governing officials, calling on uh, the Christians to pray for our nation goes back well before even the founding of our nation into the colonies. So um, it is important. We, obviously, we're in prayer anyway, uh, but this is a particular time in which we are going to be praying for our nation. And again, uh, keep an eye on your, your email and the Facebook and a few places there. We'll get some more information out to you. The psalmist says, for behold... I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, By the virtue of your Son, his sinless life and faithful mission, we rejoice in your pleasure. That we are beloved children of God, that we will see him just as he is because we will be like him, overwhelms us in a love that is almost unfathomable. 
We pray this day that we would grasp the assurance of the great apostle. If God is for us, who is against us? Let the peace of Christ rule our hearts, that we might have tribulation, give us courage in our faith, knowing that he has overcome the world. This is your promise. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and the victory that overcomes the world is our faith. Merciful Lord, guard us from the sin of unbelief. We have been saved. Let us walk in a manner worthy of our great calling. We have been joined to Christ in death and resurrection. Let us serve in newness of life. We are hidden with Christ. Let us so order our days as to anticipate the day when we will be revealed with him in glory. Father, your son tells us that we are, if we hunger and we thirst for righteousness, we will be blessed and satisfied. Be merciful. Change our love of this world that is passing away for a love of the word made flesh that will last forever. Remove the lie. Fill us with your truth. Father, all these things we ask in the name of him who is our eternal satisfaction, the Lord Jesus Christ, praying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Again, the psalmist says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Church, let's prepare to hear and meditate upon the fulfillment of God's law, our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, good morning, friends. I want to, uh, as we always do, gather around the Word of God this morning. Specifically, I'm going to look at the Gospel of John today. And as we look at the Gospel of John, we're really looking at the first half of the Gospel of John, which is sometimes referred to as the Book of Signs. And uh, it's called the Book of Signs because it contains these seven supernatural miracles of Jesus. And Scripture calls these miracles signs. The first sign that we read about two weeks ago was about Jesus turning water into wine in that small farming village of Cana. The second sign that we read about was last week when Jesus had returned to Cana and, uh, and he healed uh, the son of a, of a royal official. And today we're going to read about a third sign of Jesus. Uh, in today's sign, Jesus heals a man who has been paralyzed for 38 years. And let's just jump into our text right away and read. We're going to be reading from John 5, 1 through 15. And before we read together, let's have a word of prayer. Uh, Father, I do thank you for your word. And as we come to it, we would ask you to quicken our hearts that your word would unfold before us. Lord, we want to conform our lives to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. Uh, Hear now the word of the Lord found in John uh, chapter 5, beginning in the first verse. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, 
a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has uh, five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man that had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a, there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Church, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, Let's start as we approach this story, as we approach this scripture at the, at the setting. If you remember, we talked about Jesus' first sign that happened in this small farming village in the Cana of Galilee. And after Jesus changes water into wine, Jesus would, would leave Cana, the small village, and, and he would head towards Jerusalem. And we talked about how that was a, a 67-mile journey or, or a three-day walk. And I mean, I just kept up ponder how, how good a shape Jesus and his disciples would have had to have been, and maybe everyone in those days, uh, for walking these journeys all the time. So he walked three days to Jerusalem. And while he's in Jerusalem, remember, Jesus drives out the money changers, and he, he hangs out with Nicodemus, and uh, he baptizes some people in the Judean countryside, and then he, he walks back uh, the 67-mile journey back to, to Cana and stops in Samaria on the way. Uh, but for his third sign, uh, he actually goes all the way back to Jerusalem. So he walks 67 miles back from Cana to Jerusalem, and he's in Jerusalem again. And Scripture says that Jesus is really good about going to Jerusalem for the feasts, and, and, and the Gospel of John really records that. And, and it's, this is probably the feast of the Passover that has Jesus back in Jerusalem here for this third sign. And what Jesus does is he walks to the northern wall around the city of Jerusalem, and he exits at a gate in the northern wall called the Sheep Gate. And as, as he walks out, he finds himself by this pool of water uh, called Bethesda. And, uh, and now many of you know this story pretty well. Uh, many of you know that there were crowds that would gather around this pool of water. And not just any crowds. If we look at verse 3, we read that the, it was these crowds were invalids, they were blind, they were lame, they were paralyzed, and they'd all just gather by the dozens and, and maybe the hundreds around this pool at Bethesda. So really this was the most desperate and the most vulnerable parts of the community. And, and Jesus ends up there with them. And I guess my question for you is, do you think that that's a coincidence? 
Do you think Jesus just got lost and he finds himself in this pool of, of, of the, the lame and the desperate? And, and I would just say, of course not. One of the things I really love about this story is that Jesus' compassion is on full display. He goes to the broken and he goes to the needy and, and he heals freely. Now, what could have brought all these people together to this location, to this pool? You'll find the answer to that in John 5, 4. So if you're, if you're following along with, your, uh, with that scripture at home, and you, you go to look for it, you're going to be lost. Do you know why? It's because if you look at your Bible, you're going to discover that there is no verse 4 in chapter 5 of John. You're going to be reading chapter 5 of John, you're going to see verse 3, and then you're going to see verse 5, but in the middle there's no verse 4. So what's going on there? I mean, is there, did someone mess up? Uh, did the publishers just leave something out? Or maybe uh, when they were labeling the scripture, they just got, got their numbers off. Um, if, if you're in the King James version of the Bible, you're actually going to see that verse 4 is still in there. But if you're in one of the more modern translations, if you're in the ESV, the NIV, the NRSV, the NAB, uh, or any other modern translation, there's not a verse 4 in the fifth chapter of the Gospel of John. And, and let me explain why. The Bible, it was written originally in the New Testament in Greek, and most of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And we have thousands of these kind of biblical manuscripts that are they're hundreds of years old. And what's happened is that as translators have looked at older and more reliable Greek manuscripts, what they've discovered was that in the older, more reliable ones, that actually verse 4 was not included. What they've determined is that verse 4 was probably not original to the text. And, and what became apparent over time was that Verse 4 was inserted into some later manuscripts, kind of as an editor's note, but, but it's not original to the text. And our desire is to have the most accurate and the most original account of God's Word. And so once they discovered that the verse 4 wasn't original, they took it out of most modern translations. But, but let me say this. Let me tell you what verse 4 used to say. It used to describe the reasons that all these invalids had gathered around the pool. So we're going to put up for you verse uh, 4, what it used to say. We'll actually put it up from the King James. And what it says is that these people had come to this pool, and they were there waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. And, And then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Many of you may have, have heard this before, maybe uh, familiar with this. And so we, we have this, this verse that's been removed from Scripture because we, we see it as an editor's not, note and not original. Well, what do we do with this information? Well, just because it's not originally in Scripture doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong. It kind of gives us some sort of context into the, to the superstition that surrounded this pool. There was kind of a superstition. And we can understand maybe why these people would be gathered here. But, but let me just say this. Understanding exactly how the pool was rumored to work is not necessarily essential to understanding the story. We, what we do know is that these people believed that they would be healed if they were the first person to get into the water after the water is stirred. And, you know, can you imagine the visual? Like, as if you were watching a movie and you've got this pool and you've got a multitude of disabled people gathered around the pool. And for some reason, the water stirs. And then a free-for-all breaks out. 
And, and it's like every man for himself, this is your chance to be whole again. And people are pushing and they're tripping. And those who had legs were jumping over those whose legs didn't work. And they were jumping over mats of people with crippled feet. And, and, and it just so happens that kind of 50 people hit the water at the same time. And, and for a second, no one knows who got the blessing. And everyone's kind of looking at themselves wondering, did I win? And am, I, am I whole? Did I win the prize? And one at a time, everyone just kind of realized that they hadn't been healed. And it must have happened for somebody else. And that they were just as crippled as they were before. And they would climb back out of the water. And, and listen, hindsight's twenty twenty. Right? We can look back at these people and we can say, like, did they, did they really believe that? That's nonsense. But, you know, if you think about it, we still kind of have these things in our culture, don't we? Uh, people want to fix something and, and there's no good cure. And so um, we have this supplement market in the United States where people just spend thousands and thousands of dollars on supplements that, that the FDA can't approve, that no one knows whether or not they work, and we have essential oils for everything that aches or whatever. So you know this kind of still exists, this desperation to want a cure where there doesn't seem to be one. And then the camera of our story zooms in on one man in the crowd. Verse 5 says... Uh, it lets us know that this man's been an invalid for 38 years. And if we look at verse 6, it says that when Jesus saw him lying there, Jesus says to this man, do you want to be healed? And I've heard all kinds of theories about this being a, a trick question, and, and I don't think it was. I think it's just very simple. Jesus says to the man, do you want to be healed? And when this man responds in verse 7, he tells Jesus why this hasn't happened yet. You know, I haven't been healed yet, sir, because I have no one to put me into the pool when the water's stirred up. And, and while I'm going, then another, another jerk just gets in front of me. Someone else steps down before me, and this guy has no idea. This man has no concept who Jesus is in the moment. He, doesn't, he has no idea of Jesus' identity. He didn't, he didn't set out looking for Jesus. Instead, Jesus comes searching for this man. And Jesus comes to show his glory. And, and, and then Jesus just looks at the man and it happens quickly. It happens immediately. And he says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And that's exactly what happened. I, you know, we don't get all the details everywhere in Scripture. We have, we, it's plenty for us, but we don't have every detail of, of what the story would have been like. I often wonder um, if, if you could look and see the man's weak and, and crippled legs become strong and, and be restored. I often wonder what that would have looked like or if the man could, could kind of feel a warming or a tingling. I, that He just knew, I'm whole again. I can stand up in this moment. Scripture does say that the healing was immediate. Verse 9 says this. It says, at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Now, what do you think his reaction was? How would you react if you had been an invalid for 38 years and you were immediately healed? Would, would, you, uh, would you jump for joy, like testing that leg out? Would you, would you run just to feel the wind in your hair? Would you cry at the feet of Jesus and just thank him for this miracle? And what, what if it was a member of your family who had been kind of healed like this and, and you had been taking care of them their whole life and all of a sudden they were strong again? How much would you be celebrating? 
It's time to call everyone together. We're going to have a big meal. And if you have something that you've been saving for a special occasion, it's time to break it out, right? This is the biggest celebration of this man's life. Can you imagine what it would be like if you were in that scenario? And then scripture gives us this next line, and it amounts to basically a plot twist. Uh, what is the line that, that, that changes the celebration into something else? It's, it's very simple. It says this. Now, that day was the Sabbath. And if you were a Jew of the day, and let's just say you were a Jew of the day and you were hearing this story like we're hearing it together today, you would have been celebrating with us this man's healing. You would have been like, man, that is amazing. And then when you heard that it all happened on the Sabbath, you would have been like, uh-oh, you're not supposed to do that on the Sabbath. Uh, you're not supposed to do things like that. And, 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 and things like what, you might be asking. Like, what kind of things can't you do on the Sabbath? Well, uh, you're not supposed to be doing anything on the Sabbath that could be possibly considered work. The Sabbath law, it really began as a faithful interpretation of the will of God. But eventually, uh, as these religious leaders were trying to protect the Sabbath, Sabbath laws of the day got a little convoluted. Um, for instance, uh, there were all these extra biblical rules that were added to protect people from accidentally working on the Sabbath. Uh, you couldn't look in the mirror on the Sabbath. And I guess the logic here was if you were looking in the mirror, you might go, oh, my goodness, I have a gray hair. And you would be tempted to pluck that gray hair out of your head. And that, in, according to their logic, was work. Um, so you could also not wear, if you had false teeth, you couldn't wear your false teeth on the Sabbath. Because the logic was your false teeth might fall out and you would have to then in turn bend over and pick them up. And guess what? That's work. Religious folks would, would argue about all kinds of things and whether or not they would they were work on the Sabbath. Uh, for instance, they would have these debates and it would be like, um, let's just say a man had a wooden leg and his house caught on fire in the Sabbath. Could the man grab his wooden leg before he exited his home? These, this was the kind of logic that they were worried about. And before long, the Sabbath law became so convoluted that it was no longer about worship. It wasn't about resting in our Creator. It had become burdensome. And here comes the rub in our story, right? Here's the rub. Here was a man who had received a miraculous healing and a sign from Jesus, and it should have been a moment for celebrating, but the Jews are not focused on their healing. They're lost in the fact that the man's carrying his bed or his mat, and by clearly doing so, he's breaking these Sabbath laws, and so they can't celebrate. They can't rejoice in what God is doing in his life because they're caught up in the Sabbath laws. Jesus has done the sign. He's restored the man's leg, and they can't see it because of their legalism, they miss it. The irony is that they're, they're trying to do all this in order to worship God, but who do they think it is that's been here doing this healing? They say to the man in verse 10, we'll put that up, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. And he's like, he says to him like, you don't understand. This man who healed me told me, take up your bed and walk. And then the Jews say, okay, okay, okay. Where is this man that told you to do these things? Who dared to tell you to break the Sabbath laws? And honestly, the man, he couldn't tell them Jesus' name. He didn't know who Jesus was. And, and Jesus, when it had happened, he disappeared back into the crowd. So here's my question as we read this story together. 
What does this miraculous sign of Jesus point to? That's been our logical question we've asked every week as we talk about the book of signs. And and this is the third sign of Jesus. As we look at these miraculous signs of Jesus, we remind ourselves that the job of a sign is to point to something. And you, you remember we have had street signs. We've talked about stop signs. We've talked about the fact that if you have a 55 mile per hour sign, that that sign is pointing to the fact that you need to drive no more than 55 miles per hour. And so if we apply that logic to this sign of Jesus, this healing, what is this miraculous healing of Jesus pointing to? What do we learn about Jesus in the kingdom of heaven by his healing of this man on the Sabbath. Is it simply that Jesus is compassionate and that Jesus wants to heal uh, everyone who's been crippled? Does this sign point to the fact that Jesus wants to heal everyone whose body's broken? And, and I've heard people suggest this idea that Jesus wants to do a miracle in everyone's life by healing our bodies if we will just believe enough and if we will just choose Jesus And I I don't think that's necessarily what this sign points to. I think the physical healing of this man actually points to a much greater healing that Jesus wants to do in our souls. And and this is why I say this. This This is why I say this. That after Jesus heals this man physically, and after Jesus disappears in the crowd, and after this man gets accosted by the Jews about breaking Sabbath law, Jesus comes back. And he finds this man again. So if you look with me at verse 14, we'll look at when this happens. And it says, Afterwards, Jesus found them in the temple, and he said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. See, Jesus isn't focused on the guy's body. He starts there. He says, See, you're well. Okay. Now, sin no more. Right? Stop sinning. Jesus' aim in healing this man's body is the healing of this man's soul. The healing of this man's body was a sign that pointed to Jesus' authority to heal. And Jesus says, now that your body is healed, stop sinning that nothing worse may happen to you. So what's worse than 38 years as an invalid? Well, living in opposition to the word of God is worse. The death that comes by sin is worse. Eternity apart from your creator is worse. Being resurrected to a judgment is worse than 38 years as an invalid. So he's addressing sin. He's addressing the health of this man's soul. And there's a sense that that all of us, I mean, you're home, but but all of us, me, you, have some some sort of brokenness in our bodies, right? Like my ankle's... It's been screwed up from playing basketball for a long time. Recently, uh, I think lifting weights with my son or something, I've, I've messed my shoulder up. My back's always hurting. Like, uh, there's things wrong with my body. And, and, and I've talked to friends over the last two weeks here at the church just since we've been in, in isolation. And I've talked to friends who have cancer. I've talked to friends who have heart problems. I have friends at Lakeside here whose feet are so crippled that they can barely uh, bear their own weight. I have friends who have balance issues in our church. I have friends with hearing issues, issues with um, catching their breath. They just can't breathe. And at the end of the day, as much as we want miracles and signs to restore our broken bodies, you know, every one of our bodies is going to eventually fail us. And, And in a sense, Jesus will not have come to heal what is broken in our flesh. 
Not yet, anyway. Um, But that comes much later in the resurrection, but it does come in the resurrection. All will be made whole to eternal life. However, in our story, Jesus did heal this man. He got this man's attention. And he points him to a danger greater than a broken body. So all of us who have broken bodies realize that there is a danger for us that is much greater than our broken body. He points them to the danger of sin. Jesus suggests that sin leads to something worse than a broken body, that sin leads to true death. And just as Jesus was the one who healed this man's body, he's the only one that can heal you and heal me from our sin. He's the only solution to sin and death. In healing this man, Jesus points to himself as a life giver. You know, the the Sabbath rules of of, of these Pharisees, they, they can't do anything to bring life. They can't do anything to heal this man's body, much less heal this man's soul. The only thing that can save any of us from hell and death is is Jesus. That's what the sign points to. And let me conclude by, by saying this. Did you realize that every Christian encounter is really the similar and almost the same as this crippled man laying by the pool, that, that this really also kind of describes the way in which you came to know Jesus, very similar to the man who was laying on his mat by this pool. Jesus comes and he finds you among a crowd of, of broken people, and he comes and he finds you, and you're broken, and you're not looking uh, for hope in anything good. You're looking for hope in all the wrong things. He's looking for hope in this pool that makes no sense. I don't know what you were looking for hope in when Jesus came and he found you. You're not even sure what you need. And Jesus comes and he finds you. You didn't find him. He found you laying on your mat, crippled by sin. Um, And Jesus is compassionately searching for you. It says in Scripture that he leaves the 99 to find the one, and it's not because you asked him to. The man in in the story here doesn't ask Jesus to heal him. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. He's babbling on about not being able to get into the pool fast enough when Jesus brings us healing. And then Jesus just heals him. This this man can take none of the credit for his healing. Just as none of us can take any of the credit for our own salvation, that no man may boast, as Scripture writes. It's this free gift of Christ's grace. I'm just thankful for God who heals on the Sabbath. Uh, today, t- we were together, church, and we read uh, the Gospel of John, and we read the third sign of Jesus. We read about how Jesus healed this invalid uh, on the Sabbath in, around this pool in Bethesda. And after healing this man, he later returned telling the man that there's something worse than being an invalid for 38 years, and it comes to you by sin. Uh, The healing of this man's body points to the fact that that Jesus is the great healer who heals his people, not just physically, but Jesus heals his people spiritually from sin and death by his blood and by his righteousness. Uh, Before we pray together, you know what, I just want to encourage you who have been healed uh, by Jesus just to praise his name. You know, part of, of preaching sermons and hearing the word proclaimed is that we're moved to worship. And so I, what I hope today is that as you hear this story of Jesus, that you are moved to worship. That you just say, praise the one who by his righteousness and by his blood has healed me even when I was too foolish to know what it was that I needed. Every one of us who knows Jesus is Lord 
can only confess his lordship because we've been healed. And in that healing, you know, we were both given this new nature and we've been born again. We've been filled with the Holy Spirit. We've been engrafted into the church of Jesus. Praise be to Jesus. Listen, if, if you need to talk more about what this sign points to, about Jesus' healing of you, maybe this is the first time you've recognized that Jesus has come to you and healed you as you've heard this story and he has, has put in you a new spirit, then listen, reach out to us. You can get us on Facebook. You can call up to the church. Normally, we'd, we'd find you here in this place, but we're not together. I long for that day. But let's worship Jesus for the healing of our souls today. And, and let's do that in prayer right now. Will you pray with me? Father, we come to you today and we, um, we start our prayer by, by just praising the name of Jesus. Uh, Christ, the one who was the unblemished lamb, you came and lived a righteous life. You came from heaven to earth and, and, and you were born uh, knowing no sin. You lived a life knowing no sin and you went to the cross and you died that death that was a criminal's death, the one that we deserved on our behalf. And it is by your blood that we find our healing and we say thank you, Jesus. Praise your name, God the Father, our creator. Praise you. And there was this word from Jesus, God, that we read in Scripture that really cautions us to avoid sin. And we don't want to gloss over that today. Um, Where there is sin in our life, may we hate it. May we repent from it. May we flee from it. Um, God, not based just alone on our power, but on the Holy Spirit that indwells us, that has come in us and, and given us the ability to hate our sin and turn from it. Father, here now uh, in, our, in our homes, we're going to quietly confess our sin before you. And we're going to be reminded that as far as the east is from the west, you have forgiven us based on the blood of Jesus, those who confess their sins and and call upon the name of Christ. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, we've been together today, uh, even though we've been socially distant, we have been together around the word of God. We've experienced it together. We've heard it together. We've been the church gathered. Go now and be the church scattered. And as you do, take with you the love of God, the grace of Christ Jesus' Son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit until we meet again. Amen.